Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. Today, I'm speaking with Craig Lilly at the 49th Annual Critical Care Congress about a talk he's giving here today and an article that is coming out in Critical Care Explorations, Vaping-Associated Respiratory Distress Syndrome. To access the full article, visit ccejournal.org. Dr. Lilly is Professor of Medicine, Anesthesiology, and Surgery at UMass Memorial Medicine Center in Worcester, Massachusetts. Before we begin, Dr. Lilly, do you have any disclosures you'd like to share with the audience? I have no uh, financial disclosures relative to any other content of this talk. So we're going to be talking uh, using some of the talking points you gave at your Congress talk today, and I wanted to just set the stage for everybody. We're going to slowly go through uh, exposures, uh, the symptoms that patients may present with in uh, association with vaping, uh, what testing might happen. We're going to try to describe verbally what's probably best seen visually in, in risk stratification and then talk through management. So if we can just open with that, uh, give us a little bit of background about vaping and what it causes to the lung and how these devices have evolved over time. So vaping devices are very diverse. It's uh, surprising uh, um, how many devices there actually are. There are so many that even the international symbol for vaping in, includes nine different forms of devices. So the devices have evolved over time, and they currently involve a heating element, a chamber for solution. Sometimes that's uh, an external cartridge, tar- cartridge, and sometimes it is a solution that can be added uh, to the heating element. They often contain a pump, and uh, they have variable ways to control or modulate the amount of vaping, um, the, the flow stream, and that affects the size of particles that are inhaled. So one of the first things to ask is, are you vaping? And it's interesting, because when I recently asked that to one of my intensive care unit patients, she said, Dr. Lilly, I don't vape. Vaping's for old people. I jewel. So vaping has its own uh, language, and part of being able to take an effective history is understanding a little bit about how uh, vaping is talked among its users. Uh, is there a resource for those of us who may not be uh, as familiar with all the lingo that we can all go and get this uh, background information so we can use the same language they're using? As part of our uh, submission, uh, we've put a vaping lexicon that um, has a few tips and pointers, and there's a couple particularly important ones we can go over as we talk a little bit more about assessing exposure. So if you think about exposure the way I sometimes do, I'm familiar now that there is a lot of different vaping solutions. Does that make a difference to uh, what the person could develop, if it, uh, what they use? What they use, the device they use, and how they use the device, and how frequently they use the device are really the keystone things that you need to get in uh, when you interview a patient that's been uh, exposed to vaping. The key thing is whether or not they've been exposed within the last 90 days. Uh, If they're beyond 90 days, then vaping-related lung injury or other illness really isn't a concern. When they are using, you really want to know how they're using, and there are two important aspects of the device you want to know about. Is it a device that you fill up a chamber? Is it a device that you add a cartridge? Or are they adding solution directly to the heating element? All those different modes... Uh, generate particles of different sizes that deposit at different places down the lung and reflect the the pattern of injury that one is likely to see when the symptoms are associated with changes in the airways or the lungs. 
So uh, maybe you could walk through a little bit of that with us and talk um, at least about the presentation of the symptoms and how they might vary based on what the person is using. So when it comes to use, the three things that we focus on are recency, frequency, and intensity. And of the three, intensity is probably the most important. We've already talked about the 90-day window. Intensity is key because by applying um, solution directly to the heating element in a process called dabbing or dripping, you can generate a much more dense aerosol so that the number of particles per unit volume is higher and also the diversity of size is greater and most importantly it can generate particles that are substantially larger than the particles that are generated from a commercially available device that's used according to the manufacturer's instructions. So with dabbing it sounds like there might be a high chance also of contamination if the person doesn't know exactly what they're putting on on the heating element. Yeah, so that comes down to the solution itself, and that's really been the focus of the CDC's efforts to try to understand why in the summer there was um, a little epidemic of uh, folks that were a big upspike in the number of folks that uh, presented with acute lung injury and then several of the deaths. And so the solution itself matters. It matters whether it's commercially prepared or whether uh, it's been abstracted uh, along a protocol that you might find on the Internet from other kinds of materials, often THC-containing herbals and whatnot. So uh, what you really want to know is where did the solution come from? And so there are several different styles of this. Many of the devices themselves, really sleek ones by Juul that are sort of the iPhones, if you will, of, uh, vape, of the vaping culture, they have cassettes. They're nicely colored. They're contoured to the size of the device. They fit nicely in the hand, and they have different flavors. Those systems allow the user to modulate. They're user-modulated, so they can generate a more intense uh, Uh, aerosols of a larger diameter or um, smaller diameter, uh, less uh, intense aerosols by dialing up and down their, um, their, uh, the control on their device. The other devices allow either through a reservoir or directly for solutions to be applied. So what you really want to know is, well, who made the solution? And are you sure that the solution doesn't contain contaminants particularly vitamin E itself or one of the alpha derivatives of, the, of alpha tocopherol that, um, that might be applied. So it's really when the abstraction method is unknown, the amount of terpenes, the amount of, of vitamin E that might be in them is not measured and really unknown. Most commercial uh, preparations don't contain vitamin E and other contaminants that are thought to be associated with lung injury. So does this kind of help explain why we see a collection of different lung pathologies associated with vaping everywhere from eosinophilic pneumonia to hypersensitivity reactions to uh, more fibrotic lung disease reaction? Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to the device, the device, the use, the frequency, and the solution. So if you're thinking about a giant cell-induced uh, disease, that's really a heavy metal um, sort of exposure some of the vaping devices have coils that are made of cobalt. Uh, sometimes, in order to dab or to drip, the users will modify the device, sometimes either solder it, and the choice of solder might not be particularly wise or what you would do if you're a commercial manufacturer. So in that circumstance, you'd be worried that it's really the heavy metal from the heating element that might be causing the problem. 
In terms of hypersensitivity pneumoninus or eosinophilia, those are phenotypes that are associated um, with really sort of um, immunological reactions and have can be suggested really by the radiographic pattern, particularly advanced imaging is helpful if you're uh, suspecting one of, those, uh, one of those maladies. In terms of lipoid pneumonia, uh, sometimes you can see lipoid pneumonia directly on the CT when it's extrinsic lipoid pneumonia, but this has really been more intrinsic lipoid pneumonia. Intrinsic lipoid pneumonia tends to happen when there's airway occlusion, like behind a tumor or another foreign body that's in the airway that's there for a long time. And behind that, the lung reaction to that is to generate an abnormal lipid pattern. And that can be um, reproduced in animal models, mouse models with um, vaping exposure, and is more likely to be present when there's some form of airway uh, occlusion going on. So how do these patients present to us. What are the symptoms that we commonly see, and, and how have you used those symptoms to, for your, in your own practice to manage them? The vaping presentation has really two, two presentations. One is a GI presentation, and one is a pulmonary or respiratory presentation. The concerning GI symptoms are nausea, vomiting, and cramping abdominal pain. Those symptoms are usually tightly coupled with vaping use, and when they occur, it strongly suggests that a vaping toxin exposure has occurred. In terms of respiratory symptoms, the, one the, C, the ones the CDC has identified in the case uh, definition are cough, chest pain, weight loss, fatigue, and dyspnea. Of those, we believe dyspnea is the most concerning. It's the most uh, likely to be associated with a progressive form of the disease that ends up resulting in hypoxemic respiratory failure. So the GI symptoms are really fascinating to me because it suggests that there's a good chance that we could miss some of these presentations because they're going to be seen maybe by the general internist or the gastroenterologist or the ER doctor, and they may not make the link between the GI symptoms and vaping. How widely do you think people know that there's a GI manifestation of vaping-related diseases? It certainly is not as well known as it could be, and I think it's important because anytime you have a relatively immediate negative re adverse reaction to an exposure, it increases the likelihood that the patient might be amenable to uh, ceasing their exposure. So it's really a great opportunity to say, gee, this stuff seems to be hurting you, and maybe we should work together to see if we can come up with a plan to, to quit vaping. So let's say you've got this patient that has now presented to you, you've done the uh, exposure history, you think that you know, think that this could be a vaping related lung disease, what should I do as a practitioner next to work them up? Well, what I do is I take just a little bit of a pause before I consider my testing, because testing's a little bit of a fork in the road. What I want to know is, are you the only one that's sick? Is anybody else sick? So if the patient tells me, yeah, I shared my vaping pipe with somebody else and they're sick too, and nobody else is sick, then I'm thinking, well, this sounds like it really could be vaping. I need to take this quite seriously. If, on the other hand, they say, yeah, everybody in the house is sick, I vape, I'm sick, a bunch of people that have never vaped in their life are sick, thinking that might be an infection or another kind of an exposure. So that's the first thing I do. If after that, if I can't explain the symptoms uh, that the patient has by anything other than vaping, then I'm going to be doing some vaping screening tests. 
to get there, sometimes I want to do other kinds of studies first. It might be an electrocardiogram if the patient was having chest pain. If um, there was the right exposure history, I might be worried about thromboembolic disease. If there was evidence of infection, other people being sick, I might want to um, look at a sputum gram stain or a nasal washing or a PCR kind of test for uh, viral uh, pathogens. Um, once I've eliminated um, infection and other causes, and I'm suspecting that this is vaping related, I want to do a, a pulse oximetry and a chest imaging study, and that will allow me to perform risk stratification to determine uh, on what pace and in what setting the patient should be uh, supported and managed. And what are you looking for on that uh, chest x-ray, and, and, and what steps does that lead to after that? I think the chest radiographic pattern is particularly helpful. Um, Vaping, particularly when it's uh, associated with generating large particle sizes, tends to give central airway problems and even airway burns in some cases. When uh, the exposure is primarily by diffusion or sedimentation, then the more ventilated areas of the lung, which would be the upper lobes and the upright patient, are likely to be um, exposed so, uh, or, or, or involved. So those, uh, those sorts of patterns give me a little bit of an idea of what the exposure uh, might have been, what part of the lung the particles might have presented uh, to, and where the lung reaction might uh, might be. So given the amount of upper airway involvement, uh, is endoscopy ever indicated up front, or do you wait for that until you have more evidence? Well, I think it's always great just to start with an oral exam. It, it turns out that a lot of folks that use commercial vaping products will have changes in the tongue that are clearly visible. So there's a clear discoloration. It has a very distinctive hue. And so if you just ask the patient to stick their tongue out, that's a good start. Uh, there's another pattern that's more concerning. The, the just sort of, if, if the tongue looks like it's been painted with a red-brown paint and there aren't any uh, deviations or other irregularities in the tongue, that's consistent with probably just exposure. When there's more of a... Um, leopard uh, spot kind of a pattern, and the darker areas are depressed, it suggests that there's actually been airway burning and that there may be uh, burning in association with lower airways. So one place to start is just with the upper airway. Is there evidence of upper airway involvement? In terms of of the lower airway involvement and uh, instrumenting patients, the ones that we've instrumented have all been intubated. And I think if you're going to intubate and mechanically ventilate the patient, that's a good time to take a look down there. Many exposed patients, as long as you ensure that they're no longer exposed to vaping, the lesions tend to heal relatively quickly. So early diagnosis and early intervention to prevent exposure are some of the keystones of uh, therapy. So once we've taken our history and we've done some of our initial exams, we really feel like we have an idea that this is vaping, uh, how do we risk stratify these patients, and, and what does that lead us to for our next decisions? Well, this was a really big deal in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, our community was very, very concerned about this. There's a particular uh, hot spot in a closely associated community called Southbridge, and a lot of folks in the community were really upset. So our medical center decided that the right thing to do was to form a task force and to come up with a standardized approach and to generate some more um, way in which we could have a response to everyone. And, and, and the, the range of diseases um, ranges from the worried well 
uh, to people with mild symptoms who are going to get better in a short period of time to patients who have life-threatening progressive disease, and we've seen it all. So we decided that we needed to develop the Worcester uh, risk stratification model based on just clinical information. The first thing to do is assess exposure. If they're not exposed and they don't have symptoms, they have no risk, and they're no risk of having vaping-associated lung injury. If they are exposed but they don't have symptoms, we defer testing or recommend deferring testing until the patients become symptomatic. They're considered to have low risk. If the patient has been exposed and they have symptoms that aren't explained by anything else and they have an abnormal imaging study that has a pattern that's been associated with vaping but they are not hypoxemic, we classify them as moderate risk. For patients who've been exposed, who have associated symptoms, who have an abnormal associated imaging study, and evidence of rest or exercise hypoxemia, those patients, we believe, are high risk and need to be carefully monitored. So if we could start with the low and move up to the high, how do you manage these uh, different patients um, based on their risk score? If they're really, what you need to take care of is quite different. So for low-risk patients, the most important thing is to advise them to stop vaping. And it really depends on what their response is. If they say they don't want to, um, then that's really something that's difficult uh, to make much headway on. We haven't had good success with that group. If they say, I I really want to stop, I just need some help, then we'll ask them, have you worked with your primary care physician to accomplish that? If they have a trusted health care advisor that can work with them to stop vaping, that's really a successful strategy. Some people really have a lot of symptoms when they try to stop, whether it's nicotine or THC, and we found that referral to addiction medicine specialists can be particularly helpful for those folks. So that's how we handle the low-risk patients. Moderate risk is a different story. Um, It's really important uh, once you have radiographic abnormalities that you not further expose yourself to vaping toxins. So we do everything we can to encourage an environment where we can be sure that they aren't vaping exposed. If we can do that, then we think that outpatient evaluation is best. Often the patients will rapidly improve and don't require additional testing or intervention. Um, And sometimes how we advise patients is, is impacted by the pattern that we see on the imaging study as well. Um, the most important thing is that they need to be followed until their symptoms are gone, all of the abnormal laboratory tests have normalized, and that they've returned to their baseline level of activity. And do we have a sense at this point in time if the patients who are at low risk initially uh, move on to uh, develop moderate risk or those that are at moderate risk develop, go on to high risk? Our sense has been that it really depends on what your course is going to be. So if you limit your vaping exposure, you can take a turn uh, to the better to normal in short order up until you're hypoxemic. So it's really the high-risk patients that we find the most challenging. We feel like we uh, absolutely need to make sure that they're not uh, exposed to vaping uh, uh, toxins and that we need to follow them with pulse oximetry. We also need to uh, make sure that they're not starting to develop any kind of respiratory distress at rest. So for those patients, we recommend inpatient management. And the the keystones are that if the respiratory rate is starting to increase at rest, And if they start to have any 
dyspnea at rest, we feel that early intervention uh, with high-flow oxygen sometimes, but more often with non-invasive ventilation, is one of the keystones of preventing them from progressing to requiring uh, mechanical ventilation for frank respiratory failure. We recommend um, conservative fluid strategy, and for anyone who has progressive uh, symptoms, particularly after they've been abstinent for vaping for a day or two, we recommend corticosteroid therapy. The, uh, for those that require mechanical ventilation, we recommend a low tidal volume strategy, and we, we uh, would urge the teams to consider, the managing physicians to consider a bronchoscopic evaluation when infection or hypersensitivity pneumonitis, eosinophilic or lipoid pneumonia is expected, or when there are symptoms of upper airway damage. Those are all situations where taking a look bronchoscopically, getting some additional cultures, a matter. We do think that once the lung, and particularly the central airways, have been damaged by vaping-related toxins, that there's a propensity for um, additional infection. So knowing if the patient is developing an infectious complication of their vaping injury is really important, and bronchoscopy can be a particularly effective way uh, to detect that. So I, I would, it seems to me that we're in a early stages of understanding these diseases. What do you think the next steps are for us to really get a better handle on what's going on with vaping-related lung injury? Well, I think this is something that almost every member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine can step up to the plate and, and help out with. One of the things that we discovered when we really started paying careful attention to these patients was that this upper airway phenotype really matters. So my colleagues, um, Shazad Khan and uh, Catherine uh, Wachmanski-Silva, uh, have managed several patients where they have adroitly understood that in addition to upper airway manifestations, that the burn or the thermal injury extended down into the lower airways. And, and I think this is interesting and helpful because it um, demonstrates that where those larger particles impact, you can see bronchoscopically areas that have been burned and the formation of pseudomembranes. Dr. Kahn realized that some of the pseudomembranes in his patient were so extensive that they actually occluded airways. And when he carefully looked on the imaging studies, 3D imaging studies, the areas that were subtended by the uh, mem pseudomembrane-covered segments of the lungs were the ones that were radiographically abnormal. And when he removed those pseudomembranes through the bronchoscope and opened those segments, the uh, lung abnormalities, the symptoms, the hypoxemia, and the respiratory failure all rapidly got better in a patient who did not require corticosteroids. Where I think the research community can help us out is to really focus on what is the toxin? Is it thermal toxin? Is it uh, another aspect of the solutions that go in? And in order to get there, I really truly believe that, that our society members need to take great histories. We need to work with patients uh, to take pictures and to save receipts so we know what's in the solutions they expose themselves to, and we need to then correlate those with phenotypes and where it makes sense additional studies managed through their departments of public health need to be done. Those are the things that we're going to need to do so that we really learn what we can from this epidemic of vaping-exposed patients that have lung disease. Is there any thought right now from a society level uh, uh, within SCCM uh, of a registry for these patients so that we can all be collecting the same information and sharing it uh, as, a, as a research body? 
I'm so glad that you mentioned that. It really is not um, something that the society needs to do. Um, one of the reasons that uh, learning a little bit about risk stratification makes sense is that if, if in our strata, if, if you're in the moderate or high-risk category, we recommend that you should be publicly reporting those cases. And in many states, it's a, it's a statutory requirement that you do so. That's probably good information for all of us to know because I'm sure a few of us have uh, missed those statutory requirements. Uh, along those lines, what should we be advocating for as society members uh, related to vaping-related lung injury? This has become a, a hot topic in many states uh, about should we uh, regulatory uh, bodies take state, should we limit age groups? What should, what should we be advocating for, in your opinion? Well, there's truly a diversity of, of opinion on this particular subject. One of the things that has gotten everyone really, really disturbed and upset are the trends in tobacco use among the youngest segment of our, our epidemiologically followed um, cohorts. So if you look at 8th graders or 10th graders, those categories, tobacco use for the first time in 20 years is up, and it's significantly up. About a third of those folks uh, will be uh, vaping exposed, so it's increasingly clear that vaping is both dangerous and it's really a gateway drug into tobacco products. So the way that this has played out is that many people, many young people, who become nicotine addicted as a result of vaping, which they thought was safe, are now turning to cigarettes as a way to stop vaping. So this is really a disturbing trend, and I'm afraid that we're going to be up against commercial interests the same way that we were in the early 1960s when we realized that smoking might cause cancer. Well, that's a lot to take in at the end of a, of a, of a day, and I'm sure a lot of people will have more questions from that. Um, is there other resources that people should be looking towards to learn more? The CDC and almost every public um, health department has great information on their websites. I really feel that uh, the scientists, um, the epidemiologists in the country and the Centers for Disease Control have gone above and beyond uh, to try to get on top of this epidemic. It's limited. Uh, We're not seeing the kinds of cases we saw before. And for us, I think it's a challenge in the critical care community because those patients are going to be in our intensive care units. We're not going to see them very often. And it's really up to us to be able to recognize them. That's our, those are great words to end with. And Dr. Lilly, I want to thank you for taking time out of the uh, Critical Care Congress today to come and speak with us. And for myself, uh, this is Dr. Kyle Enfield saying thank you for listening to iCritical Care, and we hope you tune in again soon. Kyle Enfield, MD. Kyle Enfield, MD, is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, 
including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.